Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Wednesday, October 7, 2020. The first and probably the last time we'll talk about the sex appeal of the common onion. How much faith should we place in Wikipedia? And what's going on with the shortage of home appliances? All of this starts now. There's a case out of Newfoundland where the manager at a seed company was deplatformed by Facebook because, wait for it, his onions are far too racy for Facebook. Jackson McLean is the manager at Gay's Seed Company on the Rock and He's joined the Oakley Show this afternoon at Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Jackson, how are you holding out there in Newfoundland? Hi, John. Thanks for the call. Yeah, we're uh, we're doing good out here. The weather's fine. Not <laughs> cold yet. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, uh, your problems are not so much weather-related. They actually have to do with wanting to advertise some of your product, but it was considered risque. Tell us a story. How'd this come about, and uh, what's it all about? Yeah, so with with the coronavirus and everything, we're we're in the process of digitizing our business, and we're putting all of our products online. And with that means choosing photos, and we chose what we thought was a pretty innocent photo of our onions for selling our onion seeds. And then um, the other day I was looking at Facebook, and um, there was a notification saying that the photo couldn't be used because it was overtly sexualized, which I thought was really funny. So I, I made a screenshot of it and posted it on Facebook, and our Facebook fans really enjoyed it, too. They thought it was hilarious. So wait a minute. You posted it on Facebook. That was okay, but to advertise on Facebook, that's not okay. Yeah, because we, we often boost our posts on Facebook to, to expand our reach, mm. and um, I guess when you boost a post, they, they analyze the image that goes along with that post, and there was something about two onions next to each other that... Uh, triggered the algorithm and made it think that it was breasts or uh, a butt or something like that. <laughs> right. Well, uh, yeah, on occasion, you know, uh, breasts arranged a certain way can make you cry, as will onions. So I can see maybe there's a connection there in the algorithmic realm. But still in all, uh, did you do anything to, like, suggestively position these onions, or was it just happenstance they ended up being that way in the basket? Yeah, no, it's just uh, a basket full of onions, and I guess the way that the stems are faced, they could be, uh, if, you were, if you had a very active imagination, they could be seen as nipples. <laughs> yeah, you've got to be one lonely cat uh, to be seeing those kinds of things. I was saying earlier, it's almost like a Rorschach test here, and uh, if you're seeing that, maybe you've got bigger issues than wanting to actually uh, make a nice pie. Listen, uh, the onions that we're calling into question here, uh, what kind are they? Maybe there's somebody, uh, you know, in horticulture or whatever, I guess, agriculture, who would uh, know that they these things have been perceived in that way before. What kind of onions are we talking? <laughs> uh, they're called Walla Walla, and they're a, a sweet kind of onion. They're a lot larger mm. than regular onions, and um, they're a bit flatter, too. 
<laughs> All right. All kinds of double entendres possible here. So did you notify the folks at Facebook? Did you put up any kind of a complaint when this was flagged? Yeah, there was an option to re- request a review by an actual human. So uh, we pressed that button, and uh, just today I, I logged in, and it looks like we did get approved. So um, they they admitted their mistake and, and fixed the error. Wow. Uh, so this is interesting because uh, this might put a premium on said onions. Uh, you know, you could bump up the cost because they've, <laughs> there's something. <laughs> yeah, we have actually, um, as the story's been circulating, we've gotten a few orders for just those onions. Really? Because it's appealing to the prurient interest, for sure. Uh, crazy story, but this is Facebook. You're saying it's their algorithms. This is something that's uh, done objectively, dispassionately, but uh, sometimes you need the human eye to really understand what's taking place. Uh, so artificial intelligence ain't always intelligent, is what you're saying. Exactly, yeah. Um, it's, it's come a long way, but I think there's still some glitches to be worked out. <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, just out of curiosity, what kind of feedback are you getting on this? Are you surprised by the attention paid to your posting? Yeah, I mean, it's about half and half. Um, a lot of people are just confused. They don't see it. So I, I did some little uh, mock-ups of what it might have been seen as with uh with people in uh, with women in bikinis behind the photo of the onions and uh people found that funny too and the other people just find the whole situation hilarious and are just getting a kick out of it i was going to say you could leverage this to your advantage every time you know you do the uh imagery of the onions and people you know access it on the interwebs uh you've got your company's name in the background that's pretty good you're getting a lot of hits out of this there's a lot of juice coming from this let's say, a uh, mistake made by the folks at Facebook. Yeah, that's that's kind of the ironic part of it is uh, if, if they had just approved the ad, we probably wouldn't, wouldn't have gotten near as much exposure. Well, there you are. Uh, that's the operative word, exposure, and they felt that this was unnecessary exposure of breasts. Turns out it was just a couple of Walla Walla onions uh, out there yep. on the rock. <laughs> All right, Jackson, thanks for weighing in. It's an amusing story. Appreciate your sharing it with us this afternoon. Yeah, thanks a lot, John. All the best to you. Jackson McLean. He's the manager at the Gaze Seed Company. Are the authorities getting it right? You know, the people who are in charge, the gatekeepers, as it were, when it comes to matters like uh, maybe just uh, not handicapping appropriately certain talents. The Van Halen passing yesterday reminded us of that, where uh, there were record company executives who said, this band has no shot, no chance. They panned, the critics did their first album, and it went monster, 10 million copies sold. So we've been around the horn as far as that's concerned, and with Facebook getting it wrong, their algorithms on the person who was selling onions in a basket that looked like breasts, according to (laughs) the algorithms at Facebook, that was kind of amusing. But there are some serious implications to uh, when people get it wrong on the Internet, and uh, to wit, uh, I wanted to talk about a film that uh, has, I guess, uh, come out. uh, It shakes the public's faith in Wikipedia. It's called Lasting Marks, but it really drills down on uh, a situation of a report of S&M activity in the UK back in the early 80s. Charlie Shackelford is the filmmaker. He's also author of the piece Sex, Lies, and Wikipedia. Let's find out what he's all about. Charlie, good afternoon or evening where we are in the UK this after, uh, this evening for you, 9 o'clock there. I appreciate you joining us. Hey, no worries at all. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, is the point or purpose of your movie, Lasting Marks, uh, to really draw into question or disrepute postings on Wikipedia? And if so, I mean, uh, tell us how 
you present that case? Sure, yeah. Well, so the, the film itself doesn't uh, directly address Wikipedia, but it was on Wikipedia that I first learned of the story uh, that the film is about, which is this uh, legal case uh, from the 1980s in Britain, as you said, um, in which a group of men were prosecuted for taking part in these group uh, BDSM sex sessions. Um, and this was a very kind of notorious case at the time uh, in the UK and set a precedent in British law that uh, made sadomasochism illegal. Um, and yet the way that this has been remembered uh, as time has passed has been more and more distorted and in a way that, in my opinion, has framed the case less as a sort of homophobic miscarriage of justice and more as something where, you know, the police were on the side of right and, you know, needed to intervene lest some terrible consequence uh, have followed the men's behavior. Um, and I think a large part of that narrative being set in stone is down to the fact that that's what the Wikipedia entry on the case said for years and years and years. Um, and I think that's true of, you know, many uh, Wikipedia entries for lesser known stories where the choices of a few Wikipedia editors can have a really, you know, grave impact. Well, we see that uh, just in general with maybe uh, so-called influencers or people who take a narrative and run with it. Uh, it may be media who are being irresponsible. Uh, they get out over their skis. Umpteen cases that have happened here in North America, uh, even involving, let's say, uh, controversial police actions. And then you've got, you know, a grand jury report comes out with different findings, but all hell has already broken loose and people have already subscribed to some received wisdom, as it were. So this is where it's instructive. When you've got a, a story talking about Wikipedia and just maybe the seedlings beginning of uh, a false notation, it, it can spin right out of control if I'm I'm reading you right. And, and so did you have to, in effect, go into Wikipedia? Was that your... Uh, mo here to reverse engineer the story and set the record straight yeah well so once i finished the film i um you know it was really my hope that that this film would kind of set the record straight in its own right um by telling what i believe is a you know a more reliable um more balanced version of events and yet what i found once the film um started showing in in film festivals and then later online was that people were very receptive to it, but then when they would, you know, want to know more or they would maybe write about the film, they would still be relying on Wikipedia's version of events to kind of fill in the rest of the details. Um, and so it was only at that stage that I realized if I really wanted to have a kind of lasting impact on the way that the case was understood, I would need to go to that source and, and edit the Wikipedia entry myself. So as a sort of follow-up project after making the film, I, I spent a good two weeks basically painstakingly researching and rewriting the Wikipedia, uh, the Wikipedia entry from scratch uh, to try and you know, better reflect the, the true facts of the case. Again with Charlie Shackelford, the UK filmmaker, author of Sex, Lies and Wikipedia, and how uh, Wikipedia can distort uh, the reality of a situation. Now, do you get the sense, Charlie, that uh, this is just inevitable because it's kind of an open source and people can add their submissions? Uh, who is actually 
auditing or uh, policing this whole operation. There's really no one, which I think is part of the attraction, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, exactly the things that make Wikipedia such a fantastic resource are also the things that can make it a thorny one. Um, so unlike, as you were mentioning earlier, um, you know, mainstream news outlets that obviously, you know, have their own biases or their own, uh, you know, liabilities, um, Wikipedia, you know, in theory, is this incredibly democratic, um, kind of almost idealistic vision, uh, you know, of a pooled human knowledge that can be edited and added to by anyone. And at its best, it creates these pages that are fiercely debated and on which people come to a kind of consensus on the facts of the case or, or what we can best know about a case. And you find that on those pages, say, you know, the pages of uh, U.S. presidents or, you know, uh, global capitals, uh, you get these incredibly thorough, well-researched pieces of writing because thousands of people are contributing to them. The problem comes that on the smaller pages where maybe only one or two people are contributing and very few people are coming in and checking on those facts, misinformation is allowed to just sort of fester because there isn't such an interest there in correcting it, which is you know, why I, I found this on this relatively obscure legal case uh, that just wasn't enough people concerned with getting it right. So you became a de facto fact checker. Well, exactly. And of course, that has its own problems. You know, I, I'm not immune to uh, bias of my own. And, you know, I think I've done a very responsible job uh, on getting the facts right of this case, having spent a long time researching it. But of course, you know, there will be other people who disagree and, and hopefully they'll, you know, do their own research and, and add or amend or contradict things that I put up there. But it really relies on people doing that work. Yeah, you mentioned biases before, uh, whether it's in the media, you even, uh, you know, profess that uh, you may harbor your own. But what about subjective submissions? Because they do make their way into Wikimedia, uh, Wikipedia entries. Uh, how do we make sure that we can sanitize those or uh, perhaps, you know, uh, set the record straight on subjective submissions, which are highly interpretive and may obviously telegraph a bias? Yeah, well, that, that is why the, the kind of gold standard of any piece of information of, on Wikipedia is, you know, a reliable citation. Um, and in fact, something you find a lot on less reliable uh, Wikipedia entries is, is what the Wikipedia editors called weasel words, uh, which is sort of words or phrases uh, that imply authority without actually giving any evidence. So when you read, like, many people say or it was widely believed, or so on, um, where your people are kind of asking you to take their word for it. Um, and that's the kind of information that people, you know, at their best are kind of weeding out of Wikipedia and replacing with citations so that you're not just trusting what the editor writes, you're able to go and check it for yourself and see whether they are interpreting, reporting, or any other kind of evidence correctly. Yeah, it kind of lends itself to uh, what we might call euphemistically yellow journalism. I mean, you can be maligned uh, in subtle ways, and this is the, the risk, the inherent risk of this kind of a source for information, where a lot of people put credence in Wikipedia and others just roll their eyes and say, oh, you got that from Wikipedia, and they discredit it, I guess, uh, somewhere in between. Uh, 
you know, we can go between those two extremities and uh, try to find uh, what the truth is. So on your film, Lasting Marks, uh, then is that the idea that this has uh, far reaching consequences once uh, something is seeded it can really spin out of control or take us down a rabbit hole which uh, may or may not be intentional absolutely i think uh, you know you used the phrase earlier received wisdom and that really is crucial when you think about how history gets written um because you know in the case of uh, the legal case that my film is about at the time when it was taking place in britain there was you know, fraught debate about it, and people did fall down on different sides of the argument. Um, and I think that debate is a healthy one, and, it, and it's one that, you know, elicited a lot of the truth of the case at the time. The problem is, over time, that debate gets flattened out, and it does tend to be one version that is remembered. And, you know, whose version that gets to be is obviously a very political question. Um, in the case of this story, it was, like it so often is, the version of the police, the version of the government, um, and the version of more reactionary press outlets in the UK. Um, so I think what we've got to watch for is, you know, whose version of events gets to become the received wisdom. I guess it's Napoleon who said history is just a pack of lies agreed to by the victors. So <laughs> There you go, exactly. Yeah. And that's what we uh, take to the bank. I appreciate talking to you from the UK, Charlie. Uh, good work on that and highlighting the fact that uh, in many cases, the public's faith in Wikipedia ought to be challenged, uh, or at least you ought to go in eyes wide open. Thanks so much for it. Again, the film is Lasting Marks. Uh, I'm sure people can follow up and find it when they Google. There's another source that's uh, unimpeachable, all right? So we'll leave it at that. Uh, good to talk. Thank you. You got a Charlie Shackelford in the UK. Filmmaker, author of The Peace, Sex, Lies, and Wikipedia. This COVID thing, uh, it's disrupted supply chains and uh, it's altered human behavior. Matter of fact, uh, I've got a bar fridge on the fritz looking to get another one. And then I thought to myself, you know what? The one I got is a good one. I got to get it fixed. And the guy was supposed to come in today. And then I got nervous because I'm thinking if he's here while we're on air and uh, suddenly, you know, he's tinkering around. It's going to sound like Santa's workshop. Or, you know, he's going to ask me to pass him a three-quarter inch sprocket wrench while we're on air. It's not going to make sense to anybody. So, none, uh, nonetheless, the point is I, I need to get this thing repaired because I don't trust that I can get a model in before Christmas. Such is the scarcity. I got a couch and chairs upstairs. Been on order for no, no word uh, of a lie. 20 weeks now. I guess because uh, some of the stuff had to come out of the U.S. of A. So, what's going on? Uh, is this, in fact, a direct... Uh, response to the COVID-19, how appliances are apparently in short supply. Jason Gomans is the president of TG Appliance Group. He's on the line to tell us exactly what is going on. Jason, how are you this afternoon? Not bad, John. Thanks. And if I had that answer, I wouldn't be selling appliances. <laughs> All right. Well, let's just answer the appliance-related questions then. What's going on in the appliance world? My spies tell me there's a shortage. Uh, agree or disagree? Agree. And a shortage like no other in history. Um, it's all for the same reasons countless other industries are struggling with inventory and catching up from the obvious COVID impact going back to the spring of this year. Uh, it hasn't caught up and it probably won't catch up until Q1 or probably Q2 of next year before we get back to whatever uh, we've been used to and we've been spoiled in, uh, in comparison to what we've been all been dealing with lately. 
Well, how do we account for that supply chain? Uh, there's, you know, a slow, yeah. uh, the, the United States may be one of the places where these things are manufactured or offshore, that kind of thing in the Far East. Uh, is that what it's about? Yeah, in, in both cases, uh, manufacturing everywhere. Uh, it can't hide from COVID. So the fridge that has parts, you know, a handle that has screws, and those screws all come from somewhere. And those assembly lines and factories have all had reduced uh, capacity for months. So you've got that happening, coupled with the increased demand, uh, actually a surge in demand lately, that has sort of been the uh, the pushback from the the spring sort of gone quietness. So we've got a delay in demand and everybody sitting at home staring at their appliances or furniture, everything home-related has uh, just spiked uh, for a number of reasons, but we're playing catch-up. And unfortunately, you know, we've got to lower our expectations and it's easy to say, but hard to do when your fridge is broken or your washing machine's not working. And, you know, the whole world, whether you're a big box or independent, is telling the customer the same thing. You've got to wait. I'm sorry. Is that for parts as well? If you've got somebody coming in to repair because you're saying, geez, I can't wait on a new one, I might as well fix it, you know, uh, whatever it is, a compressor or something like that. Parts also in short supply? John, honestly, the parts are probably even in worse supply. Uh, that's an industry issue even before COVID hit. The availability of parts uh, has been pulled back. So, yeah, you're getting it on both a replacement or a repair. Uh, and then, as you just mentioned earlier, uh, you know, people coming to the home and the backlog of appointments because of reduced work schedules and just the whole protection scenario is just added insult to injury. So there's nothing running really smoothly, uh, per se. And it's going to take a while before we get through this. Again, with Jason Goldman's vice president of TG Appliance Group on the appliance shortage that has befallen us here because of COVID-19. You know, this is something else where as we get into a season where uh, there's obviously uh, a lot of buying activity, just pent up buying activity right now, from what I understand, you know, people have disposable income, the, the people who have retained yep. their jobs. What do you do about a shortage of supply? I mean, uh, this should be uh, one of the high water marks of your year. We got Black Friday just around the bend at the end of November, which I guess is like a, a real boon to people in retail. What are you going to do? Well, Black Friday has kind of become the, the original boxing uh, week season. Uh, so Black Friday is really a whole November scenario. And everybody, suppliers, retailers, are all scratching their heads wondering how to how do you promote something if you can't get the stock into the, into the barns for retailers to sell and get the customers' homes quickly. So I think it's going to be a muted sort of, uh, you know, result this year. Um, you know, people, you can't expect to get the same quick turnaround for uh, certainly the replacement market. You know, fridges, washer, dryers. If you've got a planned purchase for a new home or renovation that's, you know, you don't need the product right away, there's going to be buys and deals that are, you know, growing every every year. The, the Black uh, Friday, you know, gets stronger. But if you need something tomorrow or next week or next month even, it's going to be a challenge. So there's no, it doesn't matter how good a deal is if, they, if we can't get it to you. Even with the amount of inventory we have and the thousands of, you know, items we do have in our stock, it's just really spread thin. And the selection just isn't quite there. So it's going to be a challenge and, you know, a whack-a-mole type of idea to try and find those deals if you need it right away. I mean, right across the board, all appliances, uh, including TVs, micro, I mean, everything yeah. is, yeah? Yeah, you know what? I mean, it's no different than, you know, I, I waited six months uh, for to get some free weights for my, my home gym because I wasn't going out to the gym. It's the same thing uh, across the board, John. Not as much in the higher end. Again, those higher end, appliances, uh, some of the higher-end brands I won't mention, uh, have a little bit more availability. But again, there's longer lead times. But whether you're talking the, the mass brands across the board, it's the same situation. 
uh, refrigeration, laundry is the worst. Uh, some cooking uh, products, yeah, everything from microwaves to blenders to uh, the big stuff. It's uh, it's worse than it's ever been before. And we're just, we've just been used to having the selection available. You know, there's 60 brands, 8,000 different kinds of combinations of models and colors and configurations. They're just not making all of those anymore at the same rate. So they're going towards the more popular models and the things that they know sell. But, you know, the customers are now hearing, sorry, you've got to wait, you know, in some cases, yeah, three or four months, uh, which is not a, it's not a usual, typical situation in the last few years. We've been, we've been pretty fortunate to get whatever we want pretty quickly. I was scoping out barbecues recently, and uh, that's what they told me. Best case scenario, you might see something by December, but we can't promise. And I thought, uh, geez, you know, I'm going to miss the season anyway, even though I keep the thing going yeah, 24-7. Barbecue, keep, if you've got a barbecue working, keep it going. I mean, uh, actually, Napoleon came in, great company. I've been selling them for years. They've, they've got their struggles. And even with all the hiring, it's just such a backlog of demand. Some of the seasonal business just won't be there till next season. So they're already looking at trying to ramp up for the spring season in the case of grills. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. Uh, there's, I don't think really anybody has an answer and a solution other than to just deal with what, uh, what the information we're getting from the suppliers, which is tough. You know, we're telling our customers one thing, something else happens. Now we're left, you know, trying to explain why it's not here. So we're on the firing line, and it's tough after six, seven months, everybody being told no and wait. To uh, to be heard, you know, to hear that again on appliances uh, for something that you use every day is not a, a luxury item necessarily. So it's tough. And so, with the laws of supply and demand, does this draw drive up prices, or can you afford to do that? No, the prices aren't aren't going up per se. The question of how much promotional activity is something, uh, but everybody's still chasing market share. So even with constrained inventory, nobody wants to give up market share. So the customers are still going to get good value. Uh, because, you know, they're all competing against each other. But overall, uh, you're not going to see a, a stock overages, which typically Boxing Week and now Black Friday has always been uh, sort of a, hey, I've got this extra inventory, let's blow it out at a below-market discount. Nobody has a luxury of that right now. We're all still playing catch-up to the demand that's been coming in for, for quite some time now. I think the whole industry got caught off guard. Uh, everything home-related, again, John, uh, whether it's, you know, you know, pools or recreational uh, furniture appliances everything spent in the home uh, for all kinds of reasons is has been caught off guard and covid is still a major impact on the assembly and the production lines so we're not out of this uh, by any means anytime soon yeah people cocooning hunkering down and uh, some as we said yep. you know have the disposable income the pent-up demand is uh you know it's got to be exercised somewhere interesting uh that this is uh, impacting your particular uh, field as well as well a lot of the others but uh, jason appreciate you weighing in and uh, giving us a scene from somebody who's uh, retailing in appliances wish you the best i mean how we're going to get through this is uh, i guess when we get through the covid virus and people feel confident again and people start shipping and manufacturing again though yeah, uh, good luck going forward thanks for your time okay john thanks anytime take care you got it yep jason goldman's again vice president tg appliance group hmm that's the Oakley Show podcast for Wednesday, October 7, 2020. You can listen in live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. 
Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 